Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. Joining me for episode 40 is Jungian analyst, author, and lecturer, Susan Schwartz. She graduated magna cum laude from the University of Minnesota and earned a master's degree in social work from the prestigious Boston University before moving to Zurich to undergo analytic training at the original C.G. Jung Institute. After returning to the United States, she continued her studies and obtained a Ph.D. in clinical psychology. Dr. Schwartz has written several journal articles and book chapters on Daughters and Fathers, The Puella Archetype, and Sylvia Plath. In 2018, she was nominated by the National Association for the Advancement of Psychoanalysis for their Gradiva Award for Best Article for The Dead Father Effect on the Psyche of a Daughter, Sylvia Plath. She is a course instructor at the Jung Institute Zurich, where she taught Jung Narcissism and the As-If Personality, and Puella, Puer, and Shadow during their 2018 winter semester. This spring, she will be presenting two lectures at the International School of Analytical Psychology, Zurich, The Blank Mother, and the father absent to his daughter. And in the summer, she will be giving a talk on narcissism at the 21st Congress of the International Association for Analytical Psychology in Vienna. Then in October, she will travel to Russia for IAAP's fall conference, where she will be presenting her material on the Puella and the absent father. Dr. Schwartz is the co-author of two books, Couples at the Crossroads, with Dr. Daniela Rohrer, and Aging and Becoming, with Susan Scott. Today, we will be discussing her essays, The Parallax Between Daughters and Fathers, Puella's Shadow, and The Absence of Mother. This interview is being recorded on Thursday, January 17, 2019, through the magic of Skype. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Schwartz. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure, actually. So you received your analytic training in Zurich at the original Jung Institute. Yes. And I was wondering, after your education here in the U.S., why you decided to go to Zurich? Oh, well, you know, that is a very good question, actually, because it means going to another land. And psychologically, I think that that was probably what was underneath is to go to another land that would be different, completely unknown to me. Um, and I think that jars the psyche. Yeah. And, and I actually had decided before I went that I was just going to stay there until I had finished. So it was really a commitment to go there and immerse in whatever I did not even know was going to happen. Mm. That's brave. It was. I mean, I didn't even have a winter coat and it was March. Mm -hmm. So it kind of tells you, it's like that fairy tale. You know, I didn't have the equipment that I thought I needed but I certainly got it. So when you returned to the United States, you went on and got a PhD in clinical psychology. So 
usually some of the analysts I've spoken with before, they did that before becoming a Jungian analyst, but you did that after. So why did you go on to kind of add that? Well, it probably speaks a little bit to perhaps the whole Puella aspect, Mm -hmm. which might represent later blooming. Yes. Might represent realizing a little bit later what foundations are needed. And it actually, on a very practical level, I thought that it would help with insurance and referrals and all of this other kind of outer things. Mm -hmm. And it was a goal that I had had anyway in my life. Yeah. I just did it backwards. That's all. Mm -hmm. But you practice now as a Jungian analyst in Paradise Valley, Arizona, and that is in the greater Phoenix area. Yes, it is. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so in your practice, do you incorporate different theories or are you strictly Jungian? You know, uh, this goes back to what you had said about Zurich. I tend within myself to be more classically Jungian, but not really the old definitions of words like archetype, animus, things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I use that as my basic structure. And I actually see a lot of people who don't even know what being a Jungian analyst is. Mm -hmm. Arizona or Phoenix area is quite the um, more exteriorly oriented population. But I get quite a few people who really want to know on the inside what's going on, even though they don't realize it at the time. Mm -hmm. And they get it through their dreams. They get it through gradually learning to focus on themselves inside and accessing respect for their inner world. Mm-hmm. That's interesting you mentioned that because I think that sometimes I falsely give the impression that one must understand Jung and Jung's theories and Jung's findings and Jung's terminology in order to be an analysis. And that is not the case at all. In fact, it is not, I don't, I don't want to say it's not a good idea, but it's not a good idea to understand it intellectually, because it is analysis is about the experience, wouldn't you say? I would say that. I also think that, and, and I agree with you very much, that the experience of analysis is also a physical experience. Mm. It's not just a mind or intellectual experience. One should get shaken from the inside, physically and psychologically. And some people who know the Jungian terminology are really not doing analysis. Yeah. They're just doing terminology. And I really would, I appreciate it when people want to pursue the internal world, but not the internal world as defined by somebody else. Mm-hmm. And for myself, I knew who Jung was when I entered into analysis, but not 
not much. And it wasn't until toward the end of my analysis that I became interested in in what he said and more about uh, analytical psychology in general. And that's when I began to explore it. It was at the tail end of my analysis. Well, I, I think what you're saying is an experience that many people have, whether they want to become analysts or not, that the your your inside self is what you learn to listen to, not to somebody else's delineation of the psyche. Although I must say that the outline from Jungian psychology is really something that one can kind of go by and look at, but you have to apply it to yourself. And let me also add that that also means, you know, Jung did not speak about the puella. Mm -hmm. So there were characters within the psyche that Jung didn't pay that much attention to. And that's okay, because then other people can do it. I want to go back to something you said um, before we move on to what the puella is, because I think we need to define that for people that are not familiar with the term. But you had said that analysis is also a physical experience. And I was wondering if you would say a little bit more about that. What do you mean? I try to always note with people how they appear, what they are um, feeling inside, how they eat, how they exercise, how they feel when they come to the session, mm. how they feel within the session, how they move or don't move, physically to note their reactions. I think sometimes a problem has been, again, as we had said earlier, that it becomes for too many an intellectual and not a body connected to the psyche experience. All kinds of therapy can do that, where they become just the intellect without being connected to the body, mind, and the soul. This reminds me of an episode of the old TV show Northern Exposure, which was very Jungian, um, where the Native American shaman was asked to diagnose this woman's issue, and he said he needed to live with her for several days <laughs> to observe her. And that always stuck with me because I thought, isn't that the truth? Because it's our, it's our whole life, not just what we talk about during our session, but it's, you can get clues from how we move about throughout the day. I also think that on the part of the analyst, it has something to do with listening to one's interior in reaction to the other person's interior. Mm. And that brings, just by doing that, it brings a focus on the body. Whether the person is cognizant of it at the moment or not, I think it establishes a place of connection. Mm. And to me, that is what is so important in the whole analytic process is the connectedness that can be manifested and developed. Mm -hmm. 
And so you pay attention to body language and yeah. And complexes show up in the body, right? We have physical reactions to our emotional complexes. They do. And I find that many people are a little more hesitant to talk about their own physical selves than they are to talk about their, they've divided it, their Mm -hmm. psychological selves. Oh, that's so interesting. And, And I do think that they very strongly go together and one signals the other and they, it's incredibly helpful. You know, when you're feeling off, what do you go to when you feel off? What does your body tell you? How is your sleep disturbed? How do you talk about this with other people? How do you even express it to yourself? And how does it come through your dreams? People's body and their dreams are, I think, quite significant as well. Mm-hmm. Would you give an example of paying attention to your body in your dreams? Yeah, you know, you could say, what are the, I'm going to use it as kind of an outer persona kind of way. Mm-hmm. What are you wearing? in the dream. Okay. And is this something that you normally wear or is it something that is different than what you normally wear? Or does yourself in the dream appear at the age that you are? Is it younger? Is it older? And how is your energy revealed in that dream? If somebody had a dream that they were maybe five years old and in kindergarten and then describe the dream. Would you then look at, explore with the person what, what went on when you were five years old? Would you bring that? Yeah. I would. And also, how did you feel? And who did you feel close to? And what, what do you remember Mm -hmm. about that time in your life that is current now as well? So I think there's something about the going back earlier in our life, but also to connect it with what is happening now Mm -hmm. and to make it relevant because we are like a red thread. We've got our early selves and ourselves all along the way, which is very important to connect up. I'd like to start discussing the topics that I've chosen for us to focus on today. And you had mentioned earlier the puella. Would you please explain to us exactly what the puella is? So I'm going to say to me what it is. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I shouldn't say exactly. Yeah. So so black and white. Well, yeah, to me, puella is, I'll tell you how she, she, Mm -hmm. um, it's not always with women. It's also with men, but how she would appear as she would come to me for a session for analysis. She usually is somebody who looks very together. She looks like she can manage a lot of things. She oftentimes has a certain uniqueness to her, a certain um, creativity, a certain means of expression. And under that, so that's the outer, Under it is oftentimes a person who's quite insecure, sometimes quite depressed, sometimes uh, cut off from her physical self. I mean, she might be somebody who exercises a lot, but that doesn't mean she's connected. 
Uh, oftentimes there's a disconnect with food, sexuality, and she's kind of a dreamer, which doesn't mean that she doesn't get her life done, but there's something inside which stops her and keeps her quite young, like from not being the maturity of herself. And this comes about through a variety of different uh, reasons, personal and collective mm -hmm. as well. This ties into the puer, right? The puer yes. is something that I've covered on this podcast. In fact, in episode one with Daryl Sharp, he mm -hmm. mentions Dr. Marie Louise von Franz's seminal work, <laughs> The Problem right. of the Puer Eternus. And puer eternus means eternal boy, eternal child? It, eternally child, mm -hmm. but the puer is the male. Is the male version of the puella, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And, and Daryl identified with it when he read von Franz's book, and then he did his dissertation on Franz Kafka, who himself mm -hmm. was a puer. So I identify with this archetype. Um, I consider myself an individuating puella mm -hmm. um, because of having done a lot of work around it. So you had mentioned in your essay, Puella's Shadow, that, she, and I think you mentioned it a few moments ago, that Jung did not refer to her, right? Jung did not refer to the Puella at all, at all in the collected works. That's right. So why do you think that was? Well, you know, this is what one usually hears with when it's discussed about anyone who's quite brilliant, like Jung was, that they could only do so much. Yes. But I do think it is, and that is true. Thank you Jung, for pointing that out. Yes. It, it bears you, repeating. Yes, he did a tremendous amount. But for having four daughters he and one son, he really didn't address that more personal father to the child and he didn't address much on the daughter, mm -hmm. except his essay on the mother archetype. Mm -hmm. But that didn't address the daughter in relation to the father or what she would need from him to create her internal strength. I had heard early on that Jung's psychology was considered the psychology of midlife and he didn't so much talk about childhood. And I, I was fine with that because I didn't want to, you know, blame everything on my parents and, and right. go back over all that. I wanted to look at myself now. So, so Jung didn't really address parent child relationships much. And I don't think on a personal level, okay. that might have been because Freud did a tremendous right. amount, and he needed to establish himself in a different realm. But I do think that, you know, part of the Puella is also representative of an archetype, mm -hmm. and is a general way that people, women learn how to be, which is perhaps and, and is perpetuated in the culture to be 
too young and not get into midlife and to be too focused on always looking younger, being thinner, being more and more and more, this kind of drivenness, which doesn't drive one inside. I think the point about midlife is that one goes interiorly. And this is what is very difficult for a Puella person because the outer is so important. Underneath the outer is a lot of pain and a great deal of vulnerability and kind of an inability to access, well, who am I? And midlife is you're faced with the questions. Who am I? What am I doing here? How can I take myself seriously? And these are very difficult for a woman who has got that Puella aspect I, in its hardest places. You know, and it's difficult yeah. psychological struggles of how can I respect myself? How can I be myself? How can I have my strength? For myself, I do recognize when I'm getting caught up, right, in, because I am over 40, let's just leave it there. I'm just going to right say that right. I'm over 40. And which is Jung said midlife is late 30s, early 40s. So I am in midlife. I am getting caught up in, I take collagen every day. I work out every day. I just discovered Nivea makes a skin firming and toning gel that probably causes cancer, but I'm using it anyway. Do you know what I mean? So I do. When I negl- start to now, that that doesn't mean that I should neglect my physical appearance, but the messages here in the United States, anyway, the messages of looking young and Keep trying to keep up with, let's say, a woman my age who is a celebrity you know, on television, in the movies, we naturally compare ourselves to, right? Well, she's my age, but look at her skin. Look at her weight. Look at her hair. Right. So what would you say to that, to how do we live in this society that we're in, this culture that we're in, and yet be authentic? Because the messages that I'm getting are to color my hair, get hair extensions, you know, work out with a personal trainer, get liposuction. These are the messages I'm getting. And these are what some of the women my age are doing. Well, I think there's something in what you said about how one can be authentically oneself and beautifully age through life. I think this is where the Puella fits. Because there's something in that which promotes a perpetual youngness. Mm -hmm. And it sets up a conflict because you can only put so much stuff in your skin, you know, in an outer kind of way to make yourself look younger. But you have to accept the beauty of oneself, not just you, all of us, Mm -hmm. the beauty of ourself as we age beautifully. And this is what I think has been short-circuited, especially, I think, in the United States, that the, the focus is so much on a certain image of youth that one can be youthful no matter how old you are, but also with honoring one's age. So it be- 
Do you yeah. see what I'm saying? It yeah, yeah, be, can yeah. become, I think, quite a difficult uh, conflict for a lot of women. It also is true for men as well. Mm. But how can I remain healthy and strong? Because you want to with exercise and eating and sleep and good self-care sure. and interior work. But you don't want to be denying who you are. Mm-hmm. But the interior work is not talked about much, is not encouraged, Mm-mm. right? And that's another reason why I'm doing this podcast is to put this information out there so that we do get reminded that we have an internal life. And going back to what you said before about the body, I always believe that the body follows the mind so that the body is an external representation of what's going on in the inside. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's been my experience. You know, I think that very well might be true. You can see it when your body breaks down, but could it also, or, or Mm -hmm. gets itself stronger, but could you also say that they really run in parallel and in tandem with each other? Mm. So the strength of your interior life would be reflected in the strength of your body life and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So I think that they really add to each other and each requires of the other attention. Mm-hmm. You see, it means attention. The, the difficulty with the puella type is it's hard to pay consistent attention, to keep the consistency of oneself, to be able to be aware or feeding oneself, you could say, in a positive way or a good way or a solid way or a balanced way over time. Oftentimes the problem with the puella is she kind of stops. Why does she stop? Why? She doesn't really believe in herself on a bottom line way. And where does this come from? So your essay isn't just about the Puella. It's titled Puella's Shadow. Right. So you're focusing on her shadow. Would you you say a little bit about that? Yes, because here we go into the Jungian terms Mm -hmm. um, of the shadow. But I always think of the shadow as certainly the pieces that are repressed, but also have been ignored. Yeah. That the shadow is not just a a darkness in the sense of negative, but a darkness in the sense of not used. Qualities that want to be paid attention to, but have gotten submerged, lost. And they need a certain strength to be able to come forward. So again, the shadow as an ignored aspect mm-hmm. of the psyche, not just negative. I, I think too often in Jungian psychology or just in general, mm-hmm. the shadow gets uh, bad press. And yes, it, it, it really has a lot of richness in it. To me, that's what the darkness represents. So I think that the pieces that the Puella person has not been able to look at are very rich with possibilities and will mean in order to get those possibilities out, it will mean work, Mm -hmm. consistent work, solid work, keep going at it. It's like exercising every day. 
It's paying attention to your dreams a lot. It's honoring how you really feel. It's learning that you can be assertive as much as you want to be or competitive as you need to be without being uh, stamping on somebody else, but taking Mm -hmm. your rightful place. So you are emphasizing consistency. And I appreciate that because that's one of the questions I get asked a lot is because the shadow is one of the topics that I focus on a lot because it was focused on in my analysis. And I came to understand the importance of shadow work. And people ask me, well, how do I integrate my shadow? And it's not just it's not an easy answer. And I like what you said about how the work needs to be consistent. Yes, it does. You know, again, I'll give kind of an outer example for inner. I think the shadow is, I was reflecting on this when you were just talking, the shadow is connected to the persona as well. Mm -hmm. So the outer image that we put to the world. So oftentimes a Puella person will have an outer image which is not consonant with how they feel inside. Mm -hmm. So the inside is shadowed, but they can, I believe that the persona really can reflect that deeper self. Jung says not, but I think if you're being very, this is just me speaking, if you're being honest about yourself and authentic, as you had mentioned earlier, then you are going to be able to have a flexible outer self that is reflective of the inner self, Mm -hmm. the deep inner self, with its flaws, with its imperfections, and with its beauty. So what is the negative effect of how women in general in our society are encouraged to be constantly working on the outside and not not seeing how it is a reflection of the inside. So we're constantly being being told to lose weight, to look younger, mm-hmm. etc. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Here's my thing about this constant message to lose weight. Where'd all this how did all this weight get gained in the first place? People keep talking about losing weight. Where? How did the weight gain happen? This weight that we need to be losing. So it it goes further and it goes underneath. And I was wondering about that. And then I don't want to forget to ask you this is, is what you're saying about the puella also applicable to the puer? Or how are they different? I know one is male and the other is female, but are these concepts different for each? You know, I think that they are and they're not. Okay. I think the way that they are different is that women and men are raised very differently. Yeah. I believe that they still are. The expectations still actually of women that I see who are 20s and 30s now, in their 20s and 30s, they want to be with a man, again, outer, who makes more money than they do. It's like, so the male is going to be somehow more competent or is going to support them or whatever the deal is. So it reflects being raised differently. Mm -hmm. But I think that many of the issues are parallel 
and they get worked out in a parallel way, but they also get worked out differently. And I do think that the pressure on women to look a certain way is, is still very much there. Not to be brilliant or as right. accomplished as you can be, sadly. Or you could say as you get older, accept uh, that people will never look at you. You won't be seen. You're not valued. This applies more to women, I think, than it does to men. Mm-hmm. That pressure that, you know, just realize you're going to be invisible now. And the other side of that is the Puella energy, in a certain sense, because it's energetic and creative, will automatically push against that and want something which will continue to appreciate her. Mm. Even though the Puella is a personality type, who doesn't really know how to appreciate herself. I think what I'm talking about is the paradox in answering your question. Okay. It's paradoxical. I, I think that, again, uh, coming back to what you're saying, the this pressure um, and this pressure to look a certain way, and you had also said, where does the weight come from? Mm-hmm. And I would ask answer that with a question. Does it come from this pressure to be somebody that one is not, but does not take into account the qualities that one is, and they get sliced up from inside? And the woman does not learn to value herself except in an outer way. I give you an example. Someone who I had worked with is just, you know, a comment that we hear all the time. So the the mother says, well, you look pretty. Or says, you know what, you really ought to change your hair. Mm -hmm. Just kind of like that outer. What is the image or what does that give to the daughter then? How -hmm. does that tell her that she's all right and that she's good the way she is? And this kind of how to be your best self is lost in the way one should be externally. Mm-hmm. And I think there's where the weight comes from. It's a pressure that's unacknowledged because her totality of being is not acknowledged. Couldn't weight be looked at psychologically? I mean, symbolically. Yes. That, that we get heavier psychologically. And then it shows up in the body or, as you said, in tandem with the body. A few things I was thinking about is that the difference between men and women in this case, because I can hear men I know just saying right now, well, there are pressures on us too to look a certain way, to be yes. fit, etc. And I, I don't mean to discount that at all. What I want to say also about women is that I feel that the expectations for how we should look are very unnatural. I mean, when we reach midlife, there are certain things that naturally happen to our bodies. I mean, it's okay to talk about on television how men lose testosterone and need erectile dysfunction medication. But with women, I I think that there, there are things we can't fight mother nature, right? And and why not learn to 
<laughs> go with it and live with it. Instead, do you see what I'm saying? Instead of I do. taking things to stop it. I agree with you. And there's where I think that the inner work really helps mm -hmm. that one looks inside to find what what is my real weight, you could say? Mm -hmm. Where do I really feel comfortable? If I peeled off all of this pressure to look this way or that, who is the real me? It gets back to authenticity. Yeah. And yeah. am I going to be proud and feel confident in my real self? Now that each person has to figure that one out. And that is a difficult thing. It's not easy to find what the metaphor of what is my real weight as in who am I really? Mm -hmm. And how can I feel comfortable in this? Because I'm not going to look 20, but you're not supposed to look 20. Yeah. You're supposed to look and be the depth that you are. And people's, the, the weight shift oftentimes happens in analysis where people will gain weight, they'll lose weight out of internal uh, upheaval that is going on until they find where they really land their real self. It's an outer manifestation of the real self. And I think again that there is a tremendous pressure on women, you're right, and the puella is the one who will fall for it very strongly, yes. that kind of personality structure, because she doesn't know yet that she can rely on herself inside. So she relies on the outer um, uh, propaganda, you could say. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'd like to ask you how the work you've done on Puella ties into the other work you've done, notably the absence of mother um, mm. and the deadened mother. I don't know if those are the same, but you mentioned in one of the, your course descriptions that Jung was raised by a depressed and deadened mother himself. And so he turned toward the larger archetypal world for containment and a sense of belonging. And I was wondering if you would talk a little bit about that. Yes. Well, I must say, honestly, I got that from a, a reference, and I can't remember exactly where it is, mm -hmm. but it made a lot of sense to me that he... Um, and and if you read his you know his autobiography or his biography, you can tell that there was it sent him it's a in a way a positive look on loss and absence of the mother figure. He also had the absence of a father figure as well. But regardless, we could use Jung as an example for all of us and say, out of that absence and the lack comes a need and a surge for development. There's the healthy part. Mm -hmm. I need to find out more about this. And what he did with it was he went beyond the personal. He went into the archetypal world, right. the collective unconscious. And there's where I think he attached and found his people and this and that. Um, not all of us do it that way. Mm -hmm. But there always is a cost to not have that solid connection early in life or along the way, a difficult cost, but one that can really lead on to development of oneself. Again, if you become conscious about it. Right. That's the task, I think. And that's where analysis, 
to me is incredibly helpful. Mm -hmm. Not six sessions of psychotherapy, but really going right inside to figure out what have I been up against? How can I not just say, oh, I didn't get, but what do I have? And how can I use this to expand my life now? So what would you say, because people ask me these questions, and I can't answer them. Um, And again, I encourage people to enter into Jungian analysis. I've heard every excuse in the book from people as to why they can't. And Mm -hmm. I can't, I, I must understand that and have empathy for that. So sometimes I think that this is all they're going to get is listening to this podcast or reading some of the books that that I tweet about. So when people, I've heard this a lot, blame their mother. Well, she Mm -hmm. was, she was absent. Mm -hmm. She was neglectful. She was alcoholic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's why I am this way. What do you say to that? Well, you know, mother might have been absent, but we don't, we want to have a bit of empathy for mothers who maybe in some ways did not get credit for all the responsibility of raising generations of children. Um, Because usually in the past, they were doing it by themselves Mm -hmm. because the father was not there. So I think one can say, okay, she, she didn't give me, but then what do you have? You're still faced with that. So what do you have? And what are your possibilities? I do think that people will come to us and they will not want to go as deeply as we think that they could go or should go. But I always feel like people have got some kind of an internal clock and they know when it's time to go deeper. And for some people, Mm -hmm. it is not going to be time. Mm -hmm. It just won't happen. They, They either can't do it or they shouldn't do it. Or, right, right? the material is something that should just stay there. But you can't, you can't, I I can't exactly say that, but it isn't really sufficient to say, well, you know, because my parents weren't there or they didn't do this or that or they were absent. Well, okay, and now what? And how has it affected you? And, you know, as you had said about Jung, How did it affect him? Well, he went on and developed many, many things. So did Freud. So did many, many people in the world. This is very harsh what I'm about to say, but we use it as an excuse, don't we? I think we can. We use a lot of things as excuses. (laughs) Right. Right. We use a lot of things as excuses. And we want to be aware of where we're using them as excuses. I'll go back to wait. I mean, what do women say? No, I can't meet anybody right now because I have to lose my 10 pounds first. Mm -hmm. So that's the excuse. But what's underneath it? Fear of intimacy, fear of closeness. This is also some characteristics of the puella. Fear of being seen, deeply known, understood. Fear that nobody would ever understand. These are all kind of aspects, I think, that that personality type carries. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about the mother a little bit, but I also want to bring in the father because when I first started tweeting, uh, this is really how I 
reach people about the podcast is on Twitter. I -hmm. started quoting from one of your papers that you sent me, the parallax between daughters and fathers. And I was amazed at the reaction that it got. Yeah, I wasn't sure if people were going to be interested in that or relate to it at all. And I got a tremendous response. I know I've said that in the past, but I probably got a bigger response to this than anything I've ever tweeted from. So I know it's a huge topic and I would love to have you back in the future to talk more about, you have so much great material. So would you say a little bit about your writings on on the relationships between daughters and fathers and how this ties into the puella well um, yes so in that in that paper that you refer to i think some of the energy behind it relates to the fact that it was in relation to sylvia plath's poem daddy yeah and that poem has a great deal of unbridled anger, disappointment, lack, upset, I want to kill him, very primitive, basic responses to not being loved. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the response that you might have gotten was because that was in the words, that her words, and what was being expressed all those years ago, I think it's about 50 or 60 years ago, that she was carrying a certain amount of energy that actually applies now. And I do think it also is a transgenerational sorrow that we all carry that the father was the provider Mm -hmm. or was unemotional or was feared or was not close And we could go on and on, and that affects a daughter. Her sense of self, her sense of her own body, her sense of being appreciated, her sense of her mind, and it creates a tremendous lack, and really a lack of confidence in being. And I think that what Sylvia Plath was talking about was how much it had really harmed her interior world and yet she was tremendously angry about it and tremendously attached to the lack of a father so the 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 daughter attaches to what is lack not to what is present Mm -hmm. but to what is absent and takes in um what is interpreted oftentimes as something's the matter with me I am not lovable, I can't be cared for, I'm not all right, something is severely wrong. Well, are you saying that in general about daughters who had sort of absent fathers or this type of personality? I think they go together. Okay. I I don't want to say always because, you know, in psychology you can't really say always, Mm -hmm. but I think that they have a very strong connection. While you were talking about Sylvia Plath, I was thinking about Jung and what you had said earlier about, well, what did he do with his life? Mm -hmm. Uh, Despite, I don't know if that's the right word, the fact that um, he had the mother he did and the father he did, uh, Sylvia Plath, look at the path she took, two very different paths, right? Very much. 
very much. And you know, yeah. No, I was going to say they were both very creative with their words um, and, and putting it out there, but, but the course of their lives, definitely very different. So true, true. And so could we go back to even loop it with what happens to men and women differently Mm -hmm. and how they are raised also different cultures. Swiss is not the United States also different times, different eras. So the 1950s and sixties of Plath are very different than Jung born in 1876. So I think that those are all factors that come about as well as, you know, Jung refers to this always, and that is the soul. And whatever we are born with, whatever develops, these are kind of amorphous, but we have a different soul that is going to lead us in various ways what takes us over, why someone kills themselves or why somebody expands their life or one's life is expanded to a certain point, another to a longer point. It's kind of the mysteries of being. Mm. Yeah. Well, in this paper, the parallax between daughters and fathers You do also mention that patriarchal domination castrates men as well. Um, Yes. You say by justifying their lack of emotional development Mm -hmm. and that I don't bash men like some of my female friends do because I think that they don't have it any better or easier than we do. It's just different. But I was wondering if you would talk a little bit about... um, well, here, here's something that I want to, I want to mention this. Us talking here today, just for 50 minutes, has really made me consider the fact that what are we really expecting from our parents? I mean, we yeah. hear so much about they weren't this, they weren't that, they didn't do this right, they didn't do that right. Are they these evolved beings that know the best way to treat a daughter, a son? I mean, what are we expecting from our parents? No, I think, I think you've, um, I think that's true. It's almost like putting them in some kind of ideal category where they actually can't perform or what we need to do is accept what we got and what we have. And how we can take that and move it along. You know, Jung has that lovely quote. I think it's in Collected Works 10, Women in Europe. And he says something, I'm paraphrasing, something like, you know, it's up to women now to carry something on. So it's like, okay, see where you came from, Mm -hmm. but carry it on. And that's true uh, with parents. See where you came from. And develop from that. Use your creativity. Access yourself inside. Figure out where your blocks and internal complexes are. Mm-hmm. And what are the obstacles. So that you can move into life in the way. And through life. Through life. In the way that really reflects you. So out of that absence and lack. And they didn't. And I didn't get. True. And that is a sorrow. And certainly to be mourned and grieved. 
and also how to develop, because that really is what we have to do in life. We have to develop. When it's not supposed to remain, it's like what we had said earlier. You're not mm-hmm. supposed to remain with the same figure that you had when you were 10. Yeah. You, have to, you have to have a body that is an adult body honored and honored. I just wonder, is is it necessary to to kind of dissect the way you were raised and, and, um, Mm -hmm. and really mourn the things we didn't get. I don't mean I didn't get a car when I was 16 or, you know, I didn't get a motorcycle or I don't mean that. I mean, the attention from dad, was he at our soccer game, you know? So is that really something that needs to be looked at and framed in that kind of negative way? Because I know a lot of men right now who have children and are put under these guilt trips for not being there for every single thing that they do. Um, And I just feel that that's so incredibly unfair to these men that I know, because they're working and they're providing for their families. And like you said, you know, in the beginning, when we first started talking about Jung, he could only do so much. So I know I'm speaking very general here, but these men can only do so much and they have to pay for, you know, the college tuition and the Nikes and the iPads. And here we have people complaining that they're not at every soccer game. And I, that always, I always feel bad when I hear that, the, the guilt that they're put under for that. Yeah, I think there's something in, uh, well, there's many things in what you said, but there's something that's been carried transgenerationally, mm-hmm. and therefore it has built up a lot of energy in the desire and the need to fill in the blanks. But not all will be able to be filled in. That's Jung's reality of the psyche. Mm-hmm. The reality is that the psyche is real. The reality is also that we can only do so much, but we are charged to do all that we can. So when you okay. can't do all the Nikes and all the financing, maybe you can also do and learn and open to the emotional spaces that you didn't get yourself. So the value of going back and knowing what you didn't get gives you information about what you need. And many people learn to, they make do. They say, oh, well, you know, it was okay. It was all right. And they forget that, wait a second, I have to look at what was wounded so I can repair it, fill it, heal it. Not that it ever gets completely repaired, Mm -hmm. but it gets attended to. Yeah. So there's attention to what would be wanted and needed, not blame, not Mm -hmm. blame only. You get nowhere with that. Very good point. So the last subject that I wanted to bring up today was another talk that you recently did at the C.G. Jung Institute of Los Angeles called Jung Narcissism and the As-If Personality. Oh, right. Would you tell us a little bit about that and how that ties into the other things we've talked about here today? Yes. Well, I myself 
aligned them together because mm-hmm. to me they all fit. The as if personality is a personality that was aligned actually mostly with women from Helena Deutsch in the 1940s. She was a Freudian psychoanalyst. And then it was kind of dropped. And it fits and is very apt to the puella, as if meaning appearing one way, as if okay, underneath really feeling very empty Mm -hmm. and quite sad. And a Jungian analyst, Hester Solomon, in England, brought this forward in the um, early 2000s and started writing about it. And when I read that, for me, it was just a click of, oh, I see a lot of people like that. Mm-hmm. I understand that place as if Puella and narcissism as defined in this way that there's a tremendous amount of internal self-hatred, self-not-connected, and therefore looks self-absorbed, but really not self-absorbed in that total self-way that Jung talks about, Mm -hmm. where there's an appreciation for being. So I felt that they are all rather, um, they're, they're not tangential. They all go together to round out a picture of what we struggle with to be who we really are. Mm-hmm. I know that narcissism is a huge topic right now. It has been, the term is bandied about a lot. And yeah. when you used it, you said in this way. So how is this way different than other ways that you're using the word? Because I think it's misunderstood. I do. I do too. I do too. And that's why I said that. I think it's very misunderstood. People oftentimes say, oh, so-and-so is a narcissist. Well, I interpret that as saying, well, wait a second. That person probably is struggling a great deal inside. Yeah. And they have put up a, sadly, a very impervious front. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to get close to a real narcissistic person because they're vulnerable, they're hurt inside. And that's the place that I think it's quite important to pay attention to. Not, they are, they come across as self-absorbed and they won't pay attention or can't to the other person, but it's because of fear. Mm -hmm. And if they learn to go inside and figure out about themselves and find their strength and that it's all right to get close. It's all right to be considered. One won't be dismissed. That some of the defenses of the self can start to melt so that the real self can come forward. I I think it's a very tender place, narcissism. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I hadn't heard anybody put it quite that way before. And also, um, this fear of being hurt I have some friends right now that are going through some very painful emotional experiences and, and that I hear that, I hear that quite a bit and we can handle it. We think we can't handle it. And the fear of the emotional pain is sometimes just too much, but just because it hurts doesn't mean we can't get through it. I I don't know. how to say no, that. I, yeah, no, but I agree with you. I think that's part of where analysis fits. 
because one can bring one's hurt and one's pain and to that place and make sense of it and be with somebody be with the problem with narcissus himself in the greek myths he was by himself and echo had no body so again we kind of bring in the yeah. physical here right and the feminine and the masculine but the the issue of narcissus is he does not see beyond his own self his own boundaries and his challenge is to see and relate to the other which can happen in the analytic process that's why i said it's a very tender place and very vulnerable and i think people dismiss that narcissist as um, awful but under the awful hopefully there's a person hanging out but it would take a while to unpeel the defenses and the walls and this sounds like uh, another talk that you had given, which uh, maybe we can leave for another episode, titled How to Love a Narcissist. <laughs> That's right. Right? Yes. And that really was the focus of that, because we feel we can't and that the narcissist cannot change. But that's a very dim view. Mm. And it's much more how that person will learn to come out and relate and how we don't get waylaid by their defenses because usually they're just waiting for somebody to call them on their stuff so that they can be real and you've got to get through and past those defenses because when people are called on their stuff usually the first reaction is defense right Yes, but if you stay with it, even with our narcissist, we all have that narcissistic part. If we stay with it, then we can get through it. There we go back to the consistency mm -hmm. of really staying with ourselves, even though it might hurt and we might feel badly that we stay with it and then persist through because then something will change yes, and grow yes. and grow. Mm hmm. Wonderful. Thank yes. you so much. And thank you very much again. It was very, we went a lot of different places, but I think they all connect up with each other and, of course, lead us to ourselves. Wonderfully said. Thank you again, Dr. Schwartz. Okay, thank you. On behalf of all the listeners, I'd like to again thank Dr. Schwartz for her time today. Please visit the website Speaking of Jung, that's J-U-N-G dot com for more information on everything that was discussed here today. There you'll also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to listen to or to download for free. This podcast is also available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your shows. You can help support this podcast at no extra cost to you by shopping at Amazon.com through clicking on any of the book links on the website. You can also help support this podcast at no extra cost to you by registering for an online video course offered by the Young Society of Washington, D.C. that you can start anytime, go at your own pace, and have lifetime access to the material. You can find links on the front of our website. So with special thanks to Stephen Coppock, Daryl Sharp, and Suzanne Wagner, this is Laura London, 
and you've been listening to Speaking of Jung.